family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live, come on, be human and give, give, give. <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human. Aho! Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunthy, your host. Looking forward to two hours of conversational improvisation without the echo that was <laughs> in my headphones. Uh, we'll explain that in just a moment. I will also explain why we spend so much time focusing on the right hemisphere of the human brain. First of all, it's fun. It's a, it's a cool part of our brains. Uh, but it's also, will make the case, the part of our brain more important now in the 21st century than ever before. Now, from Sigmund Freud to Albert Einstein, from Aristophanes to George Carlin, jokes and a sense of humor have been studied and brilliantly expressed. But, you know, it's fascinating. It's one of the things that separate us from the other mammals. The ability to tell jokes and laugh at ourselves. And we'll do a little bit of that this morning. Uh, we'll take a look at how the right hemisphere of the brain, the role it plays in our appreciation of jokes. And I have a couple jokes I think will work pretty well. But then again, there's always a banana peel in front. Uh, we're also gonna talk to a friend of mine who has a great story to tell. Um, as we well know, a couple days ago was the anniversary of 9-11. And uh, my friend Michael Smith, who's a retired attorney, uh, was living uh, with his family and his parrot, Charlie, just a few blocks from the World Trade Center when it went down. Does he have a story to tell? As does Charlie. We'll have music from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini, Street Philosophy, from our favorite philosopher, Patrick Carlin. And joining me, as he does every week, controlling how the computer and contributing in the conversation, our favorite Weekend Warrior here at Radio Woodstock, Ron Van Warmer. So, grab some caffeine, fasten your seatbelts, and join us for a bumpy ride here at the Woodstock Roundtable. Yeah. We need a longer introduction. <laughs> Once again... You kind of made it. I, I just, just under the... Hey, Ron, how are you? I am well, thank you. A little cool and dark this morning. It is. It's uh, obviously uh, turning autumnal. It is autumnal, and it reminds us that we are, in large part, mammals, mm. but not entirely, based on the anatomy of our brains, which we love to talk about. Um, as we've mentioned, uh, still the, the cornerstones of our educational system is reading, writing, arithmetic, throwing yeah. a little science here and there. Uh, but basically, uh, there are, there's a subject that should be equally important, right? The, the workings of the human brain. Yeah. Uh, how many hours um, of your entire education were spent studying the human brain? Two? Yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, unless one majored in college in anatomy or yeah. science, um, neurology, uh, not much. And it's, according to some, I, I, think, I find this an arrogant statement. It might be true, but it's a fascinating one, which is uh, scientists claim that the human brain is the most complicated thing in the universe. Now, of wow. course, let's be a little more specific. It's the most complicated thing we know about in the universe <laughs> yeah. based on the limitations of our brains. 
I would like to think, given the vastness of the universe, there are intelligence greater than ours. Just probability says that. Yeah. And I would hope for that. I mean, the human brain's pretty amazing, and we've had some pretty intelligent folks walking around the planet over the millennia, but I hope human intelligence is not the highest <laughs> point of, the, of, of intelligence. In the universe. But we are learning, and the older I get, the more I'm convinced that the reason we're here, of course, no one really knows all the reasons. We know the biological reasons. We, uh-huh. uh, I think we're here to learn. I, I think basically that's that's what we're here to do. Yeah. Um, and it's something that we can continue to do if we keep our brains active. And uh, But I, I wanted to get, you know, uh, I'm constantly focused on the right hemisphere because I've always been a right hemisphere thinker. I didn't know that uh-huh. until learning about left and right hemispheres. But our culture as Western civilization has been for thousands of years, is primarily left hemisphere. So quickly, we've talked about it before. Let's review. We know now, uh, first first we learned through brain surgeries that um, a, a, a surgeon figured out back in the 40s that for epileptic patients who had severe um, reactions, um, seizures, uh, they didn't have any drugs for it back then. And he I don't know how they discovered it, but they discovered that if the uh, uh, corpus callosum, which are the series of, of nerve fibers that connect two hemispheres of our brain, if that is severed, people can go on with their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, the brain still functions. They're not. And it stops. The, it stops the seizures. Huh. However, in the 60s, when this was done, uh, a man named Sperry started talking to the patients and started getting fascinated and freaked out by what he was discovering, which is that the left and right hemispheres of the brain, when he talked to patients who had the corpus callosum severed, uh-huh. uh, the, 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 the two sides of the brains look at the world very differently. Ah. They have a totally different take on how things are. And... When our brains are working at their best, the two hemispheres are communicating to each other effectively. But even when the corpus callosum is intact and the two halves are able to talk to each other, they usually don't. Yeah. Uh, Because we now know from particularly research we love from Ian McGilchrist, his book, uh, The Master and His Emissary, while we need both sides of, of the brain, The left hemisphere, which is the part we use primarily for analysis, logic, language. The left hemisphere of our brain is the is the part of our brain, very important part, that can take things apart and understand the parts. Right. Which is what created the scientific revolution known as the Enlightenment period from the Renaissance through uh, to the 20th century. Um, So but the limitation, the problem with the left hemisphere of the brain, the part of the brain that our culture and our civilization emphasizes is it cannot deal with ambiguity mm-hmm. it cannot deal with uncertainty and it has a tendency not to share information with the other part of the brain <laughs> it's the part of our brain that's very territorial which is a huge factor of the mammalian brain and without that we wouldn't be here because <clears throat> for thousands of years in order for animals to survive and humans to survive we had to defend our territory um 
And to some degree, we still do, but we defend it to our detriment. Um, so the right hemisphere is the part of our brain that is intuitive, creative, mystical. It's a big picture operator. It sees the big picture. One way to look at this is uh, the cliche, which is very useful, can't see the forest for the trees. Right. The left hemisphere of our brain is really good at identifying individual trees. It's really good at helping us to remember to put the right key in the ignition when we start our car. Um, wh- you know, that when the gas tank gets low, the left hemisphere says, it's time to put gas. We need that. Right. Okay. Yes. But it can't see the forest mm. for the trees. And if ever we needed a bigger picture view, <laughs> it's now in the 21st century when we're dealing with not only the current viral pandemic, but climate change, economic disparity, and huge changes going on, thanks to both good and and problematic, thanks to the biggest story of the 21st century, which gets lost, which is the exponential increase in computer intelligence, which is connecting human brains at a level never seen before. Um, So we get caught up in the noise, which is why we often just say, okay, we'll go back into the left hemisphere and just not try to get a big picture because over 7 billion of us are connected every day through the internet. We are uploading and downloading our thoughts, our perceptions, our emotions, our likes, our dislikes, our wisdom, our ignorance, our fake news, and our important news are all getting transmitted through coaxial cables under oceans, over mountains, beamed down from satellites into our brains. And much of it comes in as noise. Yeah. Um, too much information, too much fake information. So this is the reality of the 21st century. The value of the right hemisphere of the brain is stop trying to figure thing the details, right, and open up to a bigger picture. And the right brain works, and we've all had this experience. We've all had the experience of being in, in the zone. Uh-huh. In the flow. Right. That's the right brain at its best. Um, the left hemisphere, very important, is more of a workaholic. It's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to say, okay, in order to understand this, i got to take things apart and understand it better. Another analogy I thought of is, is, is uh, with, Dr., with Professor Einstein. Um, let's say someone said, we want to understand time better. Well, you could take a watch or a clock and take it apart hmm. and study the parts of the clock and we would understand them, you know, that. But that would that give us really a better understanding of what we mean by time? No. No. So we need both the left and right hemisphere. We tend to get stuck in the left because it's the left that's more fearful. Yeah. The left is territorial. The left part of our brain is the part that gets hijacked much more easily not that the right can't be, hijacked more easily by fear and anxiety because it needs to understand what's going on. It can't stand uncertainty and ambiguity. And we know that that probably the most effective way that we learn, all mammals, but particularly human beings, is through trial and error. Uh And the left hemisphere of the brain is not real comfortable (laughs) with the error part. I'm just curious, when uh, they had the operations uh, for the... uh, 
where the brain was split, mm-hmm. was there a propensity to go toward one side or the other of those patients? I haven't seen that. That would that might. I don't know, but but the, the uh, in reading about it, they literally by asking certain questions, fig- they, they, he figured out that was only the right part of the brain could answer the question, and other questions only the left part could ah, because they weren't connected. Right. So the patient wasn't in pain, and the patient wasn't going. I feel like the world is not right. They just went to that part of the brain that could could deal with. So in other words, and again. Understand, any good theory, any good science taken to an extreme becomes ridiculous. It's not that the left does this and the right does that. It's not that black and white. Right. The left and right are involved in all aspects of our thinking and our feeling. It's a question of predominance. It's a question of um, orientation. Okay. The, the two hemispheres of our brain look at the world in a very different way. One needs to take it apart and understand the parts. The other sees the bigger picture and is willing, is open to being more intuitive, creative, inspirational. It's comfortable with ambiguity because it'll wait for a bigger picture to emerge. We need both sides. Yeah. But it's important to understand that both as individuals growing up in any Western culture, although it's pretty much true now around the world, um, we're going to be dominated by the left hemisphere of our brain if we don't actively practice and exercise and tune into the, the right hemisphere of our brain. Now, anything can be taken to extreme. We all know people who are lost in the clouds, uh-huh. frustrating to deal with. They can't deal with details, okay? Those people are too much by the into the right brain. Although the most fascinating people who ever lived were that way. I mean... If I if I had the opportunity to have dinner with Picasso, uh-huh. you know, I think it'd be a thrilling experience. But I wouldn't be asking him, um, you know. So tell me, Pablo, um, <laughs> exactly how do you determine what pigment of paint to use for Guernica? Right. You know, I'm not going to get a good answer. Yeah. And probably the dinner might end early. <laughs> um, but on the other hand. I don't want Pablo Picasso doing my taxes, okay? So, you know, we, we divide right. the world up. So I wonder if there's a quiz or a test that uh, has been devised for people to take that would give them an indication of whether they're right brain or I'm left sure brain. I'm sure there is, but all tests are, by definition, well, yeah. you know, a bit flawed. <laughs> and that's that's where we get to the problem where where we say, oh, so the left hemisphere does this and the right does that. It's not that simple. Um, but when it comes to jokes and humor, and if we ever needed a sense of humor, it's now. We've always had, right? It's the one part of the human brain that is so special. Um, And um, we now have some studies that show, because now we have the advantage of, thanks to the left hemisphere of the brain uh, a lot, we have magnetic imaging. We have MRIs. We can look into the brain, and we have neurologists actually having, where people, volunteers come in, Uh and... You know, they're told jokes, and we, we get to see what parts of the brain light up. Yeah. And um, uh, I just read an article. And the articles, by the way, some of these articles, you just want to start strangling people because <laughs> they're so technical, and the language is such that j- all f- just a scientific, dense yeah. 
academic jargon. But I plowed through this thing because there were some amazing insights once you got to a sentence that a human being who's not a post-PhD <laughs> in neurobiology can understand. Uh-huh. And did, what, what is, did you find any of those? I did. It, it took a while. But um, there was an article called Humor Appreciation, A Role of the Right Frontal Lobe. It's about 50 pages of stats uh. and MRI data, et cetera. But here's part of it that I think is understood. Well, at least <laughs> I think we can understand. Here we go. Quote, the brain regions and the potential psychological processes underlying humor appreciation were investigated by testing patients who had damage in various areas of the brain. Uh-huh. A specific brain region, the right frontal lobe, most disrupted the ability to appreciate humor. The individuals with damage in this brain region reacted less emotionally and physically to jokes and humor. Huh. So, um, why is this interesting? Because when we, and I I remember when I graduated college and I could read anything. One of the first books I picked up was Sigmund Freud's Jokes and the Relation to the Unconscious. One of the most <laughs> boring books I've ever read. And Freud was a good writer. Yeah. I mean, Dreams in the Relation to the Unconscious, one of the most important books of the 20th century. Uh, but basically, he's breaking it down to fit his theory. And um, and actually, any study of humor, by definition, is going to be humorless <laughs> and therefore right. a problem. But um, what is clear is, if we think about it, what is the, what is at the, at the essence of a joke? A joke builds up a certain amount of tension and then resolves it in this sense. If we know we're being told a joke, right, Uh whether consciously or unconsciously, the left hemisphere of our brain is going to try to figure out where it's going. Right. Which is why we laugh so much when we hear the punchline. It's almost as if we're admitting, okay, left hemisphere, (laughs) you know, (laughs) You tripped on the banana peel trying to figure this thing out. And then when you get the, because a, in a good joke, you don't figure out the answer until you hear it. That's right. And so the tension, while you may not feel it, because we like being told jokes, is built up because the left hemisphere of our brain at some levels is following the sequence. If it couldn't, we wouldn't even understand why there was a punchline. Yeah, right. So we need that part of our brain, the part that's very verbal, very logical, very sequential. And most Every joke at the end throws a banana peel into logic and sequence. Exactly. So the left brain is working really hard during the setup, mm-hmm. and then the right brain just explodes. It, it, that's <laughs> the part that could go, oh, I get it. And the, and the right brain is not trying to figure it out. Right. It might. It might. Oh, I know where this is going. Usually not. It's usually a surprise. Uh-huh. And that's what we love, just like with, a, with an infant, you know, you want to entertain an infant? Just put your hand in front of your face and then take it away. <laughs> it's like, surprise. Like, wow. wait, wait, where'd the face go? Oh, there yeah. it is. <laughs> surprise is at the basis of humor. Well, what is, exactly. su- what is surprise? It's something the left hemisphere is not interested in. Mm. It can't deal with it. Right. It, it needs certainty. It needs, as we all do, to certainty, right? We uh-huh. don't want everything to be ambiguous. Right, I don't want it to be ambiguous that my car is going to start up when I when I when I ignite when I, when I put the ignition. Uh-huh. But the fact is, if we really sit and our spiritual best spiritual teachers have been trying to tell us this for thousands of years, 
you better get more open to surprise because, by the way, it's the heart of evolution. Without novelty and uncertainty, there'd be no evolution. Right. We wouldn't be here. Uh -huh. So we're living in an age where it feels pretty much like we're in for some major surprises. Um, we don't know where all this computer intelligence and connectivity of human brains is taking us, but we know it's taking us somewhere we haven't been before. Yeah. And... Um, I know when I was younger or at a point in my life and I'd watch a magician, mm. I was always trying to figure out how it worked and how it was done. And since I have given that up completely and I've gone over to, I don't want to know how it's done. I love the fact that I can be deceived by it. Mm. That's the right hemisphere. There you <laughs> go. And interestingly, because magic is just like humor, and I think they're connected because yeah. they're based on surprise. Yeah. But the in the difference is, I think when we're being told a joke, while half of half of our brain is trying to figure it out because that's what it does, we kind of relax and kind of realize we'll wait for the surprise. Uh -huh. But with a magician, there's more that I want to figure out how he did it. Yeah. But like you said, if you by the way, and this has been verified, the one audience even the best magician does not want to go before is young kids ah oh yeah they're not as easily what's the word they use um oh it's a simple word but basically what magicians use is it's, it's a form of distraction right yes basically most magic is not that complicated to pull off uh -huh. it's a, but you have to be able to have a skill to distract the audience that's a huge part from seeing what you're doing right it's called dis, oh, it's a simple word. I'll yeah. get it. But at any rate, it has to do with getting people not to look at what you're doing. Uh -huh. And by the way, that's how politicians get away with oh, what they do. my God, yes. Oh, you, we don't want them to see that we're stealing. We don't want the middle class to see that we're stealing from them, so we'll get them angry at the poor people. Uh -huh. And if you ask them a question, they don't answer your question. Right. They say whatever it is that they want to put across and make you think they've answered your question. Exactly. <laughs> so it's, it's it's like magicians. There's a there's politicians. A are, yeah, are, they are magicians, except they're not entertaining. And <laughs> unfortunately, we have to deal with their reality. Exactly. We don't just get to leave the theater and go on yeah. with our merry way. But yeah, and and you know, um, in, in films, Alfred Hitchcock did that a lot. He would let things happen that were obviously couldn't happen. But as long as you were fooled while you were in the theater, he didn't care. <laughs> right. When you left and you said, wait a minute, that couldn't happen. He didn't care what you thought about after you left the theater. It was, well, while you were in there, you could just follow, you know, be involved in whatever it was he was trying to put across. The, the, uh, the things that were inconsistent didn't matter. Right. The reason Hitchcock, as brilliant as he is, one of my all-time favorite directors, the reason he wasn't funny uh -huh. is because he understood the distinction between suspense and surprise. In other words, the humor and jokes are based on surprise. Right. There may be some suspension along the, some suspense along the way, but the, it's about surprise. Hitchcock worked on suspense, and he described it this way. He said, um, 
if two people are talking at a, at a table at a cafe and suddenly a bomb goes off under their table, that's a surprise. Yes. But if two people are having a nice conversation at a table at a cafe and my camera goes underneath the table and shows you a ticking bomb, now we have suspense. Right. Yeah. So, um, so we're almost at our first break. <laughs> so when we come back from our first break, I heard, now again, when we say a good joke, talk about subjective, right? Uh-huh. That's part of the beauty of humor is it is subjective. But I think we'd all agree we don't hear a lot of good jokes. You know? No. And some of our best comedians are not necessarily joke tellers. They're storytellers. Yes. They're giving us their humor is based on insight and storytelling as opposed to a joke is a definite is it's something that is constructed. It's an artifact. It's a construction. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh-huh. It builds up by getting the left hemisphere to follow the sequence. And then it throws a banana peel under the sequence to give you the big picture aha. Uh-huh. And when we hear the punchline, right, most of, on a, we're talking about a good joke, right? right? Think about it. When we hear the punchline of a good joke, we don't go, that didn't make sense. <laughs> we go, of course. <laughs> That's right. That's perfect. Yeah. I just didn't see it. Uh-huh. Um, so I've, I got, I think, a good a, I think it's a good joke. Okay. And then what we'll do is, as I'm telling a joke, we're going to ask everybody to kind of just monitor your brains as you're listening to the joke and see if uh, <laughs> we discover anything or not. But there's always a punchline waiting for us, whether we uh, plan it or not. Yeah. And we'll take a break and see what surprises await us in the next segment. When you Song? That's called the joke. 
Well, the joke was on me because <laughs> when he screamed out the first line and said, when you find me in the morning, yes, I thought he said, when you blank me in the uh -huh. morning. And I went, why is Ron playing that? <laughs> yeah, is maybe he playing they, a joke on maybe me? Maybe they intended it to sound. That was Lighthouse. Now, once, when I said that to you, did it sound like that? Yes, or is that absolutely. Just my, my mind, where my and, mind is at. And, and my mind momentarily panicked. <laughs> Uh, I believe this is still the Woodstock Roundtable. It is. I am Doug Grunther, hosting, co-hosting as he does every week, and controlling how the computer is Ron Van Warmer. He will stick around after I leave at 9 to play you great music. We should mention we're in a kind of makeshift studio uh, yeah. here in Bearsville because the station is moving. It is. It rapidly. Uh, it looks like we're going to be here for a while, but uh, eh, we'll see how things go. <laughs> a couple months, maybe? Yeah, I think so. Um, They're still still building the studios, right? But the new equipment is going to be amazing. It's yeah. going to be all new stuff, digital boards, uh, just amazing. So, so people will actually be able to hear what we're talking, what exactly. we're saying. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> we're going to have to improve our act. I'm going <laughs> to have to get a whole new education. Yeah, we're going to have we're going to have to up our up our levels here. So we're talking about uh, the left and right hemisphere of the brain, and how one of the advantages of the right hemisphere is it's uh, better at appreciating humor. Uh -huh. because it's more open to surprise and it's skilled at waiting for a bigger picture to emerge from a lot of details. The left hemisphere of the brain is very valuable because it can take things apart and understand the parts, but has a, it has trouble seeing the forest for the trees. Uh, don't ask the right hemisphere to give you information about the details of a situation. It can't, but it's the place to go for the bigger picture. And when we break down a good joke, it consists of creating a sequence and then throwing a banana peel and mm -hmm. totally ruining that sequence, but coming to a bigger picture. Because one of the reasons we smile or laugh, or if we don't laugh out loud, enjoy a good joke, is the resolution. Oh, that's the punchline. <laughs> I wouldn't, and, and, and most jokes are. We don't figure them out. Right. And that's good. And you, 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 you pointed out a very good relationship between a good joke or a good comedian's performance and a good magician's performance because both are based on surprise. Yeah. Um, the difference is with a joke, when we hear the punchline, we immediately then can figure out, oh, that's how the joke worked. It built up this way, and then that was the surprise. Whereas with a good magician, we never figure out how they did it. Right. And when you, when you set up a joke, the audience is expecting a joke, so they're ready to laugh. If you just told the joke without setting it up as a joke, it might not be as funny. Well, you bring up another good point, which is not part of necessarily what this is about. This is more of an analysis of the joke and seeing how mm -hmm. we shift from the the sequence of the left hemisphere into the surprise, big picture, resolution, punchline of the right hemisphere. But we've talked about this before. One of the most important, maybe the most important skill of a comedian is not having a lot of good jokes necessarily. Because as you point out, even a good joke, if not set up properly, won't get the response. Mm -hmm. A good comedian is very much like a good shaman. They create a space of anticipation and expectation. Right. And a comedian cannot succeed if he or she does not 
very quickly win over the audience. Yeah, and I've seen that. Oh, where it, where it doesn't work. It's painful. It's a car crash. <laughs> it is. And sometimes the same joke gets a huge response with one audience mm-hmm. and no response from another audience. So there's a little bit of a shamanic kind of yeah. field that has to be created for humor and magic and shamanism and uh-huh. healing to work. Uh, and sp- we could also talk about Norman Cousins. Great book from the 19, I think it was 70s. Anatomy of an Illness, in which he literally cured himself of an incurable uh, illness through humor. I remember that book. Well, we, could, we could get to that, but let me tell you the joke. So okay. Uh, as I'm telling the <laughs> I'm, I'm joke. I'm already. <laughs> as, I'm, uh, as I'm telling the joke, um, notice how it builds up sequentially and logically. Mm-hmm. So the left hemisphere is following it along. And... A part of the brain is going to say, all right, where's this going? I want to figure this out. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you will. I certainly didn't. Um, but when you hear the punchline, you might laugh out loud. You might smile or, or not. But there'll be a re- you'll feel good about the resolution. Oh, okay. Right. I get it. Now. <laughs> then the fun part is reviewing it and going, oh, my God, that is so brilliant. <laughs> I don't know who created this joke, but it's a brilliant one. All right, here we go. Ready? Desert. Okay. Guys trucking along the desert didn't estimate how difficult it's going to be, has run out of water, and is really struggling. And he's moving slowly, and his throat is parched, and he's getting desperate, and up in the, he sees a human figure. And he gets up to, and there's a guy, rather well dressed for the desert. And the first guy says, Water! And the guy says, well, I don't have any water, but I could tell you some ties. And the guy says, no, 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 water. And the other guy says, sir, I don't have any water, but I really, I can give you a good deal on a tie. It'll be a good deal. <laughs> the guy goes, water. The other guy says, okay, look. You see there's the rise in the, in, the, in, the, in the road. Up over that rise, there's an oasis. There's an inn there. They'll give you water. Guy trudges along. Four hours later... <laughs> The guy's crawling back, <laughs> and he finally makes it to the well-dressed guy. And the well-dressed guy looks down and said, didn't they give you any water? And the guy looks up and said, I couldn't get in without a tie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, good joke. Yeah, right? it is a good joke. Couldn't figure it out. No. <laughs> but it makes perfect sense. Now, of course... When we, if we try, the left brain goes, why didn't the tie salesman tell him that he needed a tie to get it in, which would have ruined the joke? Right. Yeah. We probably got a better uh, deal on the tie. Probably got a better deal. On the, tie. <laughs> um, <laughs> the guy says, I'll give you the tie for a glass of water. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. I thought it was a pretty good joke. Yeah, it is a good joke. All right, now here. There's a subset of jokes called puns. And often puns are called groaners. Ah, come Uh on. I don't like simple puns. Eh, To me, it's like, come on. It's like, unless I'm trying to entertain a young young person, I'm not interested in nursery rhymes. Uh I'm not interested in silly, stupid elementary. But I love really clever, intricate puns. Okay. 
Because think about what a pun does. A pun actually teaches us that life is more vertical than horizontal. Let's go back to time again. Do you? I remember this so well. When we're taught history, and I don't think this has changed. When we were taught history back in school, with fifty years, you know, yeah. forty years ago, fifty years ago. For me, it's now sixty years ago, even <laughs> ten years old. Um, there was this this line with right a straight line, and then there'd be a mark, you know. Tenth uh, century BC, and then another one, yes. as if history is linear, which is how the left brain looks at the world. Right? Uh-huh. It's sequential. That's a model. It's not an accurate model because nature is dynamic; it's not linear. But uh, uh, we were kind of taught that nature history is kind of this straight line. Yes. What a pun does is it shows. A, that our language, particularly the English language, is incredibly complex. It's based on a set of rules, but the rules get broken all the time in mm-hmm. interesting and creative ways. Otherwise, we wouldn't have poetry. Right. We wouldn't have good writing. We would just have declarative sentences. And so a pun um, shows that there are always multiple meanings, right? It's uh-huh. never one thing. Right. But... I was reviewing, because I'm going to be doing a talk soon uh, at a private home uh, on a subject I like, which is the what I've, the three shifts that I feel are defining the 21st century. And the most important one being the shift, a shift from a predominantly left hemisphere way of thinking to one that is more balanced and more right hemisphere. And humor is one of the examples. If we want to keep our sense of humor, increase our sense of humor, bring more humor into our life, we have to open up more to the right hemisphere of our brain, which is more intuitive, creative, and is comfortable with ambiguity. Mm-hmm. So I was looking up, I was like, well, maybe for the talk, I'll just rattle off like 30 puns in a row and just have people <laughs> kind of watch how their brains are going. And then I realized, eh, it's a little contrived. But when I researched puns, I found two what I think are great ones. Yeah. And they're connected at a certain level. Hmm. Right now, the first one, I don't see how anyone would get it, which is why I like the answer. Uh Okay, you ready? I'm ready. See if you like it. (laughs) What's the favorite meal of the Loch Ness monster? Now it's interesting just to watch how our brains (laughs) even go about trying to figure that out. Yeah. Right. So let's play it out. I mean. Loch Ness meal. monster. What 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 might a Loch Ness monster eat? Okay, uh, something Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's a better. There's a better joke there. <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, there's probably a Scotch tape pun there somewhere. It could be. Um, gosh, monster. Uh, something big. Uh, uh, Favorite meal of the Loch Ness Monster. See, so the left hemisphere is doing its job. It's trying to figure, okay, the Loch Ness Monster, it'd be something in the water, right? Because right? it lives in the water. Mm-hmm. It's a big animal, so it's going to have to eat something big. Yeah, it's probably. a monster. Um, or else millions of something small. Uh-huh. Um, it's a good test for the brain, right? Yeah. <laughs> What's the favorite, and I'm stretching this out because then the answer's more fun. Uh, of course. What's the favorite meal of the Loch Ness Monster? Yeah. 
Um, Someone's, I guarantee you people are Googling it and probably getting the answer yeah. online, which is fine. Uh-huh. But that's why we're not taking phone calls. See, all three lines are lit up. Yeah. All right, we'll take one call, but I have to ask a question first. All right. Hi, who's this? Hang on. Hang on. See if our phones work. Is our, are our phones working? Hello? <laughs> everyone hung up. All right, everyone. All right. I, yeah, so <coughs> I think that's part of the... They're moving stuff, and our phone systems aren't the greatest. Yeah, it could be. At any rate, we appreciate your calling in. <laughs> so it's just an interesting thought experiment, right? Yes. What would the favorite... Monster. F- favorite meal of the Loch Ness Monster... So it could have something to do with Scotland. It could have something. Uh-huh. It, it obviously should have something to do with water, right? Um, or so. Let me ask you. Uh, I'll, I'll do it. What, okay. what do you find? What would you find in in Loch Ness, which is a, a loch is lake, Scottish yeah. for lake, so right? It's fish, a big lake. Fish, okay. Fish, um, uh, what else would you find on a lake? On a huge lake. On a huge lake, um, ships. Mm-hmm. Uh, sailors. Okay, now here's what's interesting. By answering those questions, you actually you actually have the essence of the answer. Uh huh. So let's break it down. We're using okay. our left hemisphere now. <laughs> well, let's yes. break it down. It's tough. Right? The favorite meal of the Loch Ness monster has to would one with since it can't walk, it's going to have to be something that is in the water, right? And it's going to have to be something on the bigger side. So, so you mentioned two. You mentioned some objects. What objects ships, did you mention? You mentioned and ships, sailors, and what else? And uh, fish. Yep. The, you you got the answer. The answer fish. is there. Ah, yeah, you got it. Fish. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Fishing. Uh, you ready? Yeah. The favorite meal of Loch Ness monster: fish and ships. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> An oh God of response. Of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I was close and yet so far away. Welcome to the world of jokes. <laughs> That's why they're great. The, the chips eluded me. <laughs> <laughs> may the ships fall where they may, the Loch Ness Monster oh, might say. Good. Yes. Um, the, that, that's a clever one. That I wonder who clever. came up with that. <laughs> that person should be rewarded. Yeah. Okay, now get ready for the second one. Okay. So... The favorite meal of the Loch Ness monster is fish and chips. Mm-hmm. What's the favorite? Me- <laughs> oh, oh no! What's the favorite meal of nuclear scientists? Ay, favorite meal of nuclear scientists: fission chips. Say it again. Fission. You chip. got it. <laughs> fission chips. <laughs> Give yourself an A plus. Ay. Ay. It was uh, it was there. It was there. We gave it to the before, but still very well done. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Favorite meal of nuclear scientists: fission chips. Fission chips. Yeah, that works. There's somebody on uh, Facebook who's doing a dad joke of the day. And a what joke? A dad joke. Dad of the day. joke of the day. And they're all like that, uh, and I can't think of any of them at the moment. Uh, I'll have to. I'll look some up and see. That's another thing about jokes. If I'm giving a talk and I'm gonna, I like to include a joke or two. Uh huh. And I once did a talk at a hospital. Someone I knew had a program at one of the Kingston hospitals for cancer survivors, and she said, "Would you come in and do a talk on humor?" And n- nothing can be duller than a talk on humor, you know, unless you make it funny. So I decided. <laughs> 
I collected the best jokes I could, including some puns, and I had them typed up, and I asked volunteers to come up and read the jokes. Uh But I prefaced it by saying, I'm asking the audience here, there might have been 30 or 40 people, the reason people don't like to come up and tell jokes is they're afraid it won't go over. Right. Right? Well, number one, I'm giving you the joke, so you can blame it on me if you don't. But <laughs> let's just have an agreement that we'll laugh whether we think the joke is funny gotcha. or not. And that gave people the confidence to come up. Uh-huh. I remember some of the jokes. Because I figure for cancer survivors, let's really hit it. Let, you know, they're survivors. So we told cancer jokes. <laughs> All right. They loved it. Yeah. Okay. Um. Where was I going with that? Um, oh, that jokes are very hard to tell well. They are. And there are some people who are really good at it and some people not so good. But I would make the point that we all can be a lot better at it. We'd have, But it's a practice. Yes. Now, my humor is mostly improvisational reaction, you know, improv, this and that. I'm not, I don't think of myself as a joke teller. Uh-huh. So when I know I have to do one, even one or two jokes, boy, do I practice them hard. Yes. Uh, it, it's like an etude in a piano. I mean, some people are natural joke tellers. That's true. Uh-huh. Some people are naturally funny. Yeah. But I know for a fact, even those great comedians, whether it's a George Carlin or a, I love Bill Burr, I love Norm MacDonald, um, Mel Brooks, you can go down the line. Uh, they practice. Yes. Yeah, it is a skill. So yes, you can have natu- you can naturally be funny, but you're going on a stage. You you know, uh, you better be practiced. Yes, you better be. <laughs> so you ready? I remember the jokes at the cancer survivor talk, and I gave them to tell. It got good responses. Yeah. Um, see if I can do it right. Guy goes to the doctor. Right away, you gotta like the joke, right? Guy goes to the doctor. <laughs> Uh, to get his test results. And the doctor says, well, I have some bad news and some very bad news. And the guy goes, bad news and very bad news. So right, give me the bad news first. He says, well, the x-rays came back and uh, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid you only have 24 hours to live. And the guy says, that's the bad news? <laughs> What's the very bad news? Doctor, I've been trying to call you since yesterday. <laughs> Went over real big. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I thought uh, the joke you did a few weeks ago um, about the guy in bed who was asking the nurse a question. <gasps> I love that one of the joke. best jokes I've heard in uh, years. Now I got to remember. See, that's a, that's when you got to practice. <laughs> the let me see. I, I'm going to work backwards it's, from the punch. Well, I don't want to give the punchline for those who didn't hear it. Hang on, let me right. let me work it out. It's very difficult. I tried. Ah, okay. I tried telling that joke. And I got screwed it. it up. Okay. It, it well has to do with testicles. Yes. <laughs> it's an easy joke to screw up, and we men screw up a lot with our testicles. That's probably why we screwed the joke up. Yes. All right. So it's it's kind of a COVID era joke because a guy's got COVID and he's he's in a hospital recovering, and of course he's wearing a mask, and uh, he sees a nurse and he waves her in. And the nurse is keeping her social distance. And he goes, could you please check and see if my testicles are blocked? <laughs> and she's, you know, taken aback by this. And the guy, and she's sort of motionless, doesn't do anything. And the guy says, could you please, through, this is through the 
muzzled right. effect. Could you see, see if my testicles are black? Can you imagine someone just tuning in? <laughs> um, and now the, the nurse goes, look, sir, um, I'm not a regular nurse. I'm a volunteer. And quite frankly, what you're asking me, I feel is inappropriate. And the guy's getting irritated. He says, look, I want you to check and see if my testicles are black. She says, all right. Doesn't want to cause a scene. <laughs> so he reaches under, lifts his gown up, and she says, you're okay. And the guy looks at her kind of crazy and, and takes his mask off and says, I was asking you to see if my test results are back. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that joke, and it's funny. It's a tough one. Just because it's... Yeah. Uh, uh, and there are jokes that you can hear over and over and over and laugh at each time. Which is great. I mean, even you know them. I mean, <laughs> people... I don't know if it happens so much anymore, but comics used to make albums and you would listen to them over and over and over. Mm -hmm. And they were always funny. And one of the, yes. And one of the reasons, as I remember back, because my father would bring back comedy albums all the time. Yeah. I'm not a big nostalgia guy, but I remember the covers. Bob Newhart, the button down. Oh. Bob Newhart's a very fine comedian. Very funny. Became better known as a TV sitcom guy, but very funny comedian. Yeah. He did a routine of, <laughs> he did it. What a great premise. He did a routine. He did it brilliantly. Uh, imagining what it would be like if you were a custodian, say at the 90th floor of the Empire State Building, and you look out and King Kong is climbing up the building, <laughs> what he would be reporting uh -huh. to his supervisor. Right. Great routine, yeah. great concept, pulled it off. Uh -huh. um, he used to do wonderful uh, one-sided phone conversations. Yes. That, Shelley Berman was another Shelley guy who Berman did that, did who that ended too. up on uh, playing Larry David's father on Kirby Enthusiasm. Uh -huh. uh, great stuff. But speaking of comedians and a little bit of philosophy, let's bring in Patrick Carlin, oh who knows a lot about humor, comedy, and uh, street philosophy, because he's our favorite street philosopher. We always check with him in with him every week because he's our inoculation against COVID because uh, uh, his attitude is always refreshing. Let's see. Coming up in hour two, we'll talk to the Sultan of Sonic Soul, jazz impresario Gus Mancini. We'll open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox to celebrate the life of the man who invented the word reggae. And we're going to talk to Michael Smith, who was living two blocks from the World Trade Centers when they went down. And uh, his story involves uh, what happened to him, his wife, his son, and his parrot, who had a lot to say that day. All right, we're trying to get our phones to work here. Come on, Hal. And uh, we want to patch in with Patrick Carlin to end our first hour yeah, here at the Woodstock yeah, Grand yeah, Table. Yeah. How are we doing? Uh, you know, it's a struggle. It is a struggle. I'm not quite sure what's going on here. Okay. Let's try it one more time. If not, I will call him on my cell phone, and I'll hold my cell phone up to the microphone. Give it one more try. It's ringing. All right, we got a we got a dial tone. That's good. Yeah, we have ringing. That's These, good. The, the phones have been. Blinking hey, Patrick, we're on the air. Yeah, man. Turn your That's radio down. Joke. You know when things look like they're not going to happen, then they occur. That's the joke. The whole trip is a joke down here, man. <laughs> you got to extract yourself from it and just enjoy it. And uh, I like jokes. I always did. Patrick, turn your and radio down. Turn, oh, yeah, I can turn that baby off. Yeah, right, there my you brain, go. That, the, the left hand of my brain is, is always a day late. <laughs> I'm strictly a right brain dude, oh, man. Oh, we love that. But, you know, talking about jokes, man, you made me think of one of my favorites. And uh, Marlene always used to ask me to tell it by 
declaring the punchline. Tell them the one about, and there you went. <laughs> but it didn't matter because it was a good, like a story kind of joke. And it was about Shorty, and he went to the track, and he hit the daily double, so he's downtown, and he picks up a great-looking dynamite honey, and he takes her uptown to the neighborhood bar, the night spot on the corner, and he's showing her off, and he's spending all kinds of bread, and things are looking dynamite. And the chick is digging it, and uh, in comes Long John, man. And then Long John takes a dance with the honey and all, and uh, hits on her and stuff, and she liking this, what she's seeing there, and she says, uh, well, you know, but I feel so bad. Shorty spent so much money. I'll tell you what I'm going to, she's thinking, and she says, I know. All right, she said, Long John, I'll tell you what. I'll leave with you, and uh, but we got to make it fair. So, Shorty, come here. Uh, I know that you've been with me, but I want to, so I'm going to let you boys have a race out here. Now, we're on the corner, and I want you to run over to the other side of the avenue, and then at that corner, turn and go the other corner, and the third, and come back here to home plate. And whoever comes in first, I'll go home with. Now, that's fair. And she's saying, well, Long John, man, he's going home with me. Shorty's going out to lunch. And she's ready. They strip down to their boxer shorts. And she says, on your mark, get set, go. And they take off from the one corner to the second corner. And Long John got them strides going. And he's way in front, and they turn from the second corner to the third corner, and he's pulling out further in front, and Shorty is huffing and puffing and running twice as fast, and Jake, you can't catch up, and coming in between second, right into second base, Shorty's boxer shorts bust open, and out falls Mr. Salami, and the chick says, Shorty! Cut a corner, cut a corner. <laughs> you know, I can't wait to tell it to. I wish I had grandchildren. I, I, I would tell that to them. Oh, it's good for the kids. Do you mind? Hit on Patsy the waitress and said he looked at her little name tag there and he was drunk on martinis. He didn't know he was messing with Patsy O'Reilly from the old neighborhood. And he looks up and he says, Oh, Patsy, do you F word? And she just looks at him, not startled at all, and she says, no, as a matter of fact, I don't F-word, but my brother does. (laughs) Why don't you bring your mother and your sister by? (laughs) (laughs) Ah, that made me feel so good. (laughs) And me and Al laughed about that. We're going back, because that sent him out of the barn back to make the appraisal I needed to make my deal. But, uh, yeah, jokes are great. Jokes are great. And uh, I like romance jokes. You know, the one like the uh, the guy who's coming up uh, and, uh, you know, the old bull and the young bull. They're just basic things, man. And the new heifers are out. Forty brand-new heifers in the lower pasture, and the young bull goes ape shit. He Whoop, says, hey, 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 let's <laughs> run down and blank one. And the old bull looks at him and said, nah, let's just walk down and blank them all.
<laughs> Ain't that nice? That's basic I, stuff. I think you got that from Spinoza. <laughs> I think I he was the first yeah, one who he told was that joke. For that one. Yeah, uh-huh. um, and uh, they they work and they're funny and I like jokes, but uh, basically uh, the whole thing is a joke. And we are here to learn. And I love the experience. And uh, my bro had a lot of fun with it. And uh, he uh, he did a thing that I popped into again the other day that I had neglected. And it's a coast-to-coast disaster. And I've been liking, like, the uh, modern man. I've been thinking that was the greatest. But I got into this one deeper. It is full of profanity, man. It's right... I mean, but only when it's necessary. You know, that's the idea with being profane, man. I've been cursing since I was old enough to know. Uh, I mean, since three years old at least, man, when I told the lady in the elevator that said, what a nice little boy, what's his name? And I answered with this, S-O-B. <laughs> and, uh, and so I've been, I've been going since then. And uh, I'm the one who taught George that one of them seven words is not cow sucker. And uh, so I'm, I'm in. Well, the, I know uh, George, George uh, Carlin dedicated one of his books to you, said to my brother, older brother, Patrick, who taught me attitude. Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't have to teach it to him. It just seeped out of me and into <laughs> him. And he, he saw, you know, uh, I just I just despise people messing with me. And even at a young age, man, when I went into first grade, you know, I didn't cop an attitude. I was just being me. And that's exactly it. You poke me with a sharp stick, and I'm going to slam you with something heavy. I mean, I just don't dig it. And uh, the best way to get a job out of me is tell me what you want done and then leave me the hell alone, and it'll come in there. And that's why you're uh, still alive and kicking, and we appreciate it. We always look forward to uh, um, a hit from our favorite street philosopher. And I'm going to tell you something. It's just magnificent, and it features right now, you're talking about viruses and and the world. This is about the world ending, and it's wonderful, and it's it's called Coast to Coast Disaster. And people can uh, Google it, uh, George Carlin Coast to Coast? Yeah, I'll bet you can. All right, well, check it out. But it's filthy, man. uh, That's part (laughs) of why I love it, is because he just gets down at the end, and he's just reaching in there and bringing up really weird stuff, man. I'm going to play it again, yeah. All right, well, listen, Patrick, you give our best at home, and we look forward to uh, catching up with you next week, okay? All right, this is Patrick, my son, saying goodbye with the blender. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, Packy. Excellent timing. Have a yeah. good one. We're going to take All our right, you guys. We're going to take our second break yeah. and come back with uh, the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini, the Woodstock Roundtable Jukebox, and uh, our featured guest, Michael Smith. We don't have many guests, do we? No. There's a reason for that. <laughs> well, uh, we want to wait for someone special to show up, and Michael Smith's a special guy, uh, and he had a, has a very special story to tell. Uh, he, his wife, his son, and his talking parrot. Uh, we're living a few blocks from the World Trade Center when it went down. And the parrot had something to say. Man. We'll find out. Hang out with us here at the Woodstock Roundtable. When I sang this song, y'all, uh, oh. singing it for my baby. She's 
only one can bring me joy. That's why I sing these happy songs. They go dum dum.